Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. We've walked through our mission, we've walked through our vision, we've walked through our strategy, but today God said that here and moving forward, he's called us to be one church and one family. Isn't it awesome to be in the same room together? Man, this is what God's going to do. So listen, I do actually have a message I'd like to preach today, but before that, I believe in expectancy. Hand on your heart with me. If you just put your hand on your heart, say this, Jesus, I don't know everything you're about to do, but you're good. So it's going to be good. And I'm all in. Jesus, I say yes. Build your church. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, we are now in week two of our brand new message series called Unveiled Love. And we're looking at the picture of how Jesus has come is who the fullness of the Father has always been. And this morning, we're going to turn back to the middle of the Old Testament. Now, in the center of our Bible, in the very heart, there are several books that they call the wisdom literature. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And that's pretty amazing, because if you look at something that's needed at the center of our culture today, it's wisdom, isn't it? And we come in all of the wisdom literature to what I would say is the most foundational human question. And the question is this. We find it in the book of Job. If God is so good, why do some things go so bad? If God is so good, why do things sometimes go so bad? Maybe you think right now about the unexpected death of a loved one, that even the mention of their name or the thought of them or seeing them in a picture, it steals your breath away and it still has the power to paralyze your day. You think about a doctor's report that you've done the best you know to take care of your health, but you're finding yourself in debilitating and constant pain and ache with no answers. I can think of three different seasons in my adult life where I went through great aches and pains and went to every medical professional in their field and had no answers. One time it came with chest pains. Another time it came and it is six months that I can only define as having the flu over and over and over and over again every week. The third one came when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, pain came into my back at that point at a, at a late 30-something, which is young, y'all. I'm not that anymore, but I'm still young. And pain came in my back, and it took the thing that I loved, running, 
away for a long period of time. And in each one of those, I went to every medical professional and they had no answers. I went to every prayer and ministry line. I got all kinds of words spoken over me. Listen, I was confessing my sins, your sins, my parents' sins. And at the end of all of it, I was just asked, asking God, why? Why is this happening? Maybe you think in your life about the death of a friendship. You think about somebody that you've loved and you've blessed and you've had all these memories together and somehow, and you don't even know how, it just crumbled in your hands and every time you think about them, your heart breaks just a little bit. Maybe right now, there's a dream of yours. If you were being honest, you'd say, it's on life support. You hear this talk about saying, we live, we live, we live, but you'd say, yeah, but I'm just getting by. And I'm wondering right now where the clock keeps ticking and I feel like I'm not living the fullness of everything God created me to be. I can clap for all these teenagers, but I don't feel I'm living the fullness of God has for my life. And I'm wondering, am I ever going to fall in love? Or am I ever going to find that dream career and job that's the thing that I was called to be? Am I ever going to step into freedom, either spiritually or financially or otherwise? It would seem that everyone who's ever had a story worth telling has also told about a dark night of the soul. A time where everything they knew and everything they trusted descended into a furnace that could only be described like death. But praise God. Somebody say praise God. Praise God. God, All of these stories sing of life from the other side of the furnace because of what God did in the midst of their trials. As we started Overflow Church in January of 2019, We started with a core value, and it's a value of expectancy. And that value says this. It says that we trust God's faithfulness over our feelings. We trust God's faithfulness over our feelings. But here's where this gets tricky. We've got to ask, how do you know what you're really trusting in? Is that emotional? Is that intellectual, something you could study in a book? Or is it far simpler than that? Well, I want to give you hope. I'm going to tell you that actually all of us today chose active trust in at least three places. The first is this. You got out of bed and you chose to come to Overflow Church this morning because you believed, you trusted that it would be worth the time and the soul. And if you didn't, guess what? You'd still be sleeping. So how do you know you trusted it that you chose to invest your time and your soul there? Second one is this. Every person in the room, you got in a cage of metal this morning, closed the door, strapped yourself in and willingly either hit a button or turned a key when thousands of tiny controlled explosions happened over and over again, igniting a mix of fuel and oxygen. And guess what? You didn't scream when it happened. Most of you danced and sang. And that's crazy. How do you know what you trusted? You were willing to put your loved ones in it. Right now, as I'm talking to you, all of you look pretty relaxed even though you've all seen the viral videos on AFB of people busting their butts, falling out of chairs. (laughs) But right now, you've chosen to trust yours by what? Putting your weight in it. See, to trust something means to put your weight in it. It means to put your loved one in its hands and its care. It means to give your time and your soul. And that's good news. Because our feelings are all over the place. They change from day to day. They change based on our health. They change based on our behavior, that's ours and others. They change based on current events. They change based on opinions. 
The Bible says that all that can be shaken will shake. But we have a promise from God that though our feelings shake, his faithfulness never does. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the Father says to us in uncertain times. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, by grace, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's unpack this just a second. This is what it says. It says that there's a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and this kingdom, what defines it is it can't be shaken. You look back to the Lord's Prayer and we're told this, yours is the kingdom, O God. Yours is all of the power. Yours is all of the glory. You're over all and your kingdom is above all. So your kingdom, whatever the kingdom of God is, it can't shake by the things that shake down here. And he continues and he says, and here's the joy. He's giving that kingdom to us. See, here's God's job in that equation. God's job is to redeem, to renew, to restore, and to release his kingdom. And upon the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's paid in full, which means right now your transaction is processing. You're receiving the kingdom as we speak. Heaven is coming to earth right now as we speak. Somebody, that's good news. So what's our job? If God's job is to purchase the kingdom and make the kingdom and rule the kingdom and give the kingdom, and right now he's done all that. God did his job, yay God. And now we're receiving it, and all of that is certain. I want you to get this. If you belong to him, you're going to fully receive his kingdom. Somebody, y'all, that ain't even in my message. <laughs> if you belong to him, regardless of your behavior, regardless of your theology, regardless of anything you can do, because that's his job, you will receive the fullness of his kingdom. So what's the only job that we have that determines anything here today? What's our job? You ready? It's this. Hold on to grace. Hold on to grace. Now here's the deal. If all of that good news that we said, anybody want a life where you step above all this junk that's shaking all the time? Anybody want to be like Tigger in an Eeyore world? Anybody? Okay, if you're wanting that this morning and God says you only have one responsibility, hold grace. I don't know, would it maybe be helpful if we knew what the heck grace meant? If it's the only job. Said, just do this and everything else follows. Here's what grace means, because maybe you think you know what it means, but I promise you, you don't know it in its fullness. Grace means this. It means unearned love and favor from God that fills you with joy and pleasure and delight. I don't know about you, but who wants to find that one under your spiritual Christmas tree? Anybody want favor from God that you don't have to earn? Would that be good? Favor from God not based on your behavior. And favor from God that you see so clearly that your only response, regardless of, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I'm kind of quiet, that no, he says, I'm going to come with so much favor, like a tsunami, that it is going to fill every fiber of your being with joy and praise and delight, whatever that looks like pouring out of you. Is that good news? And he says, this is what we've got to do. We've got to hold on to grace. So what does that mean? It means no matter what your circumstances say, hold on to grace. No matter the, the popular attitudes and opinions of others, hold on to grace. No matter what you feel today, hold on to grace. Somebody needs to take feelings off of your thrones. Your feelings aren't to be trusted. She said, my feelings are all over the place. Welcome to the human race. What's it doing on the throne? Your feelings don't know how to rule. Hold on to grace. 
When you're surrounded by a world where everyone else is shaking, you don't have to. Why? Because you can hold on to grace. And I love this word hold because what it means is to keep your arms closed around it and to keep it in your possession. Any football fans in the house? I know it's not NFL football season right now, but listen, this is the picture I get of holding on to grace. It's when a team fumbles the ball and all of a sudden that huge defensive tackle gets first in, that big dude that you don't want to meet in an alley. And he gets the ball in his gut. And now all kinds of things happen down in the pile. It gets ugly. But I'm telling you what it means to hold on to is he wraps his whole body around. He takes every tendon, every fiber, every muscle that he's tried to work exercising. And he says, I don't care what has to happen. I'm not letting go of this ball. I'm keeping it in my possession. What is God saying? Take the grace that I've given you and keep it in your possession. Hold on to grace. Now, as you and I hold on to grace, here's what happens. Our confidence changes. We're no longer filled with restlessness and anxiety. We're filled with reverence and awe. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. And we come to see that our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? God is a consuming fire. It means this, that in his kindness... Your God is so committed to who he created you to be that he's transforming even your trials into a refiner's fire where he is presently purifying and removing everything that doesn't belong to who he created you to be. That's too good. I got to say it again. Right now, in God's kindness, he is so committed to who he created you to be that he's transforming even the worst of your trials into a refiner's fire where whether you know it or feel it or not, he is presently purifying and removing everything that doesn't belong to who you're becoming. Now, throughout history, we've seen God only in part. We've seen him in veils and we've seen him in shadows. But when Jesus appeared, we were told that once and for all, we saw the unveiled expression of who God, our Father, has always been. Jesus is the Father, hashtag no filter. And so today, I want to lead us to this big idea. It's this. Until we know who our Father is, we will confuse his refining with resisting and his forging with forgetting. Until we know who our Father is, we will confuse his refining with resisting and his forging with forgetting. What am I saying? It's this right now, no matter what you feel, God isn't resisting your dreams. He's refining you to be able to stand up under them. God isn't resisting your dreams. God isn't out against you. No, he's actually refining you because God didn't come to redeem your dream. He came to redeem you and a redeemed you will step into God's dream. Right now, your God isn't forgetting you, though he's forging his character in you. That word character that we talk about a lot, it's important to us. It would help us to know the definition of character. Right from the Greek New Testament, it's this. Character means a mold, press, or stamp that engraves or imprints an image in something. I want you to know this morning, no matter what you're feeling, that presently God is imprinting a unique expression of himself in you. But if that's true, then we have to recognize something about character. 
and assist that character is only formed through pressure. A brand, a stamp, a mold. You hear all these words? None of these are pleasant words, right? Stamp, press, mold. Mold's the stuff that gets in your house and you got to get out. It's a different mold, but it's still not a pleasant word. What does it mean? It means that often when God wants to put his character in you, it's not going to happen in the times that feel like spiritual Disney World. It's in the brokenness where he refines you. But can I tell you a second truth right now? Right now, if God is, is stepping in, you feel the pressing of life, it means that your God has drawn close enough to touch. What does it mean? It means right now, if you're feeling lots of discomfort, it means that the comforter has come close enough to touch. God isn't forgetting you. He's forging his character in you. And so I want to look at hope. Hope that comes through the most unlikely source. It's a book that most people try to skip. There are two books in the Bible people try to skip. Job and Revelation. We're going to go to Job today in the Old Testament because I'm going to tell you, Job is a story about the hope that the Father is making in the furnace that you're facing. And so as we look at the story of Job, Job is actually believed by many scholars to be the oldest story that we have. It was the oldest verbal account that they told to one another. And when they went in, they believed that it might even be the oldest written document that we have, that though the events of Genesis would have been first, that was recorded a lot later because God's people would tell stories to one another verbally. They weren't like the Americans that were like, it's not valid until somebody writes it down. So the book of Job is this most ancient account. I think it's fitting because it's a beautiful picture for the story that we're in. When we step into the book of Job, it begins with God. And we're told that God is good and that God is king over all. It doesn't take long, though, before we find out there's an accuser in the story. He hates humanity and he seeks to bring us down. But just like in Genesis, when man comes onto the scene, we don't start by hearing our brokenness. No, the story starts by celebrating the goodness God created in mankind. We meet Job, who, humanly speaking, is blameless. He loves God. He adores his wife. He's a really present father. Now, Job has 10 kids. Okay, he puts me and my, my homeschool five to shame. But Job with his 10 kids, this dude is so holy that at every social function they go to, he stays up all night praying for protection and forgiveness just in case they stray. They're like, we're just going down to the gas station. He's like, I will stay up and keep watching and pray. And I got to say this. I love my children, but man, sleep is beautiful. <laughs> sleep is amazing. And if Job's kids weren't introverts that never went out, it meant he was sacrificing a whole lot because he loved his children. We read on and find out that Job was respected in his community. He was a leader among his people. Job worked with all of his heart. He was wealthy, yet he was generous and gracious. Job, everywhere he went, was honored as the same guy behind closed doors as he was in the public square. Job walked in purity. He says that he made a covenant with his eyes never to look inappropriately among any woman. He's a man that does the right things for the right reasons. But something is broken in the story of Job. From the very beginning, we hear that his story, like ours, is filled with pain and loss and death. And we don't get all the details, but it's very clear by the time we get to the end that God isn't the source of the corruption. There's an accuser. 
And the accuser comes at the beginning and he confronts God and he claims that Job only serves God because God has blessed him with this cush life. And all of a sudden, without warning, Job loses everything. His employment turns belly up. His barns burn. His animals perish. In an instant, he goes from riches to rags. Before he can even respond, the news reaches him that he feared all of those sleepless nights, that all of his kids were together at one of those social functions when tragedy struck and killed them all. And before he could even grieve his loss, painful boils broke out from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with a pain so severe, the Bible says, he was unable to speak for a full week. He could only gnaw at his lip and moan. And in his agony, the one thing that God allowed Job to keep, his wife, calls out and calls on Job, Job to renounce his faith. She comes to him in the midst of his misery and doesn't say, honey, I love you, you're wonderful, be strong. She says, why don't you just curse God and die? She's a ray of sunshine. And I don't know of everything else, listen, I'm never about loss, but of everything God took, right, at that point that Job would be thinking, is like, well, if you're going to be clearing house, why not take her too? Um, <laughs> Her presence only adds to his misery in this moment. Talk begins to spread all through the town. That this tragedy must be because there's some hidden malady in Job's life that everything is not as it appears. Because they're all certain that a holy God would never allow a righteous person to suffer. And so overnight, Job loses his friends, his name, his legacy, and any semblance of his standing. The few friends that are left come to sit with him. And to their credit, they're silent a full week before saying a word. But goodness gracious, when they open their mouths, they make up for all the time that has been lost. For the next 35 chapters, Job and his friends carry on in what I can only call the internet argument thread from hell. Like, it can, it can make any Reddit thread look like a cakewalk. And this is the way it looks. The friends show up and they say, well, we believe that you're suffering because you have an unnamed sin and you need a call right now on God and repent. And then Job responds by maintaining his innocence and saying, no, I'm so sure I'm innocent. I wish that I could just question God directly. And then the friends come back and they say, well, see, that proves that you're prideful because you think you have the right to question God. But then Job comes back and he's like, you know, well, you were steeped in sin at birth, right? And they're back and forth and back and forth. And it is exhausting to read. At the heart of the debate is this. It's a question about the nature of suffering. Who is God for and who is God against? Who delights God's heart and who is depraved? And I want to tell you that though these are difficult chapters to read, I want to propose to you that we are living in these 35 chapters of Job today. We're living in the midst of a story that often we don't know where God is or what he's doing. And there are opinions abounding about what we need to do to make everything right. There's lots of opinions and pointed fingers and defending who's right and who's wrong, who's in, who's out. And everybody feels they have the right to speak for God or what they're going to say to God. But finally, in Job's story, God appears from the whirlwind and he answers none of their questions. In fact, God shows up with some questions of his own. He begins his talking. Now, Job chapter 38, and he says to Job, Brace yourself like a man. That's God speak for put your big boy pants on, right? This is going to get real. 
And he begins, and for the next several chapters, God asks a series of questions that reveals a great hope for whatever road you're presently traveling on. He asks this. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who is it, Job, that shut the sea behind closed doors and fixed its limits so that nothing could pass it? Job, were you present when I named the stars and when I stretched the galaxies out like a bedsheet and hung them in the sky? Job, have you seen where I hold the storehouses of snow to release upon the earth in due season? Job, do you feed the animal kingdom? Do you satisfy the needs of creation? And on and on he goes, pointing continually to his power, his presence, his provision, saying, Job, listen, there's a lot going on in this story that you don't know, but this you need to know, that I am God. And I'm a God of majesty and a God of mystery. I understand that my ways seem like an enigma to you, but Job, you need to know I'm in control. There's no tyrant script being allowed to be written here. And Job, I'm good. And when the final curtains roll, when the final uh, curtains close on this, when the final credits roll, you're going to see that I will be everything I promised. As God continued to speak, he informed Job's friends that they spoke foolishly about things they didn't understand. That Job was indeed righteous and that his life had pleased his father. And see, here's the problem for us. When we misunderstand redemption's story, we misread the road signs. When we misunderstand what God's doing, we start pointing at people and saying, you're out when God has called them in. That's the whole reason Jesus ended up on the cross, is we didn't know the wideness of our Father's love. Finally, God is done. We're at the end of the book of Job, and Job has a chance to respond. He's finally seen a glimpse of God behind the curtain, and what I find amazing is this. Job's next words were not this. Oh, God, you're too severe. Oh, God, you're too mean. Oh, God, you're too distant. Oh, God, you're too powerful. Oh, God, you're too angry. Oh, God, you're too scary. No, Job chapter 42, he said this. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. For up until now, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. One look into the eyes of our creator and every question Job thought he boasted about evaporated. I want to tell you there are things we're saying right now. Well, when I meet God, I'm going to ask him a few questions. No, you won't. Because suddenly in that moment, like Job, you're going to know that you've always been safe and seen and loved and held. And when you can understand truly that God is good, maybe, just maybe, you can be good with mysteries being above your pay grade. The story ends with God ushering Job into exponentially greater blessing than anything he knew before the days of the furnace. It's what the New Testament would say, God taking us from glory to glory until glory. And Job lived happily ever after. Some centuries later, Jesus would appear on the scene is what I would call the God of Job with skin on, the fullness of the Father. And he would say these words in John chapter 14 that I want you to hear, especially if you're going through a tragedy or an unknown today. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I wouldn't have told you that I went to prepare a place for you. 
But if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be where I am also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, his disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. But if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Jesus meets his disciples in uncertain days of mystery. And he shows up much like the days of Job. And he says this, listen, you know the way that we're going. And Thomas, just like Job and probably just like us, says, no, God, we don't. We don't know the twists and turns that lie ahead. We don't have any guarantees of the number of years that we're going to live, what's going to happen in our financial situation or our job, what loved ones we're going to lose or what legacy we're going to leave. We don't know the way. Until you hear the voice of your father again, he says this, let not your heart be troubled. Trust me, I am your way. I'm your home. And I've gone right now to prepare a place for you. Now, for any Jewish reader that would have heard Jesus, these words are scandalous. Because the words that he's actually given are borrowed from a Jewish marriage ceremony. See, in a Jewish wedding, they had two stages. The first stage was the betrothal. This was the legal part of their ceremony. This is where they actually became husband and wife. They came together and they made a promise and a pledge before one another. But the moment they said, you're husband and wife, you may kiss your bride, there was no honeymoon. What happens at this moment is the groom immediately is swept away. For an undetermined period of time, the bride doesn't know where he's gone or when he's coming back. But the reason the groom is gone is because he's gone to build a, a house that would be worthy for her and him to live under. And at a time that is unannounced, suddenly he comes back in and he sweeps his bride away and they consummate their union and they live happily ever after. Don't miss this. Jesus says that we're living in the days of Job where it feels like our feelings are saying that there's silence or distance. But in the midst of these feelings, we can't miss the fact of who our father is and what story we're in. If we're going to understand the days of Job, we need to understand that we're not in the days right now of anguish, but in the days of anticipation. We're not in the days of frustration, but days of preparation. That's why he says, hold on to grace. There's something to delight in that I'm doing and that I'm building right now. And by the way, if you didn't know, the house that he's building, it's you. The house he's building is you. You say, why are these trials coming? Because I'm building you to be ready to stand with me forever. Don't miss it. It seems like I've gone away. But no, I'm refining and building your house. I'm going to tell you many times we get angry at God for doing nothing more than answering our prayers. Jesus, I want to be more like you. I want to be more like you. And he puts us in opportunities, not in him being cruel, in mysteries we can't explain. Say, I don't know why that happened. I don't know why my dad died when I was six. And I've heard a lot of ignorant statements. Well, your dad was an alcoholic, so maybe he needed to die because otherwise you'd go this and that. Listen, I don't belong to a script of scarcity. You don't need to kill my, da my dad for Jesus to be on the throne. So I've heard lots of ignorant reasons that trials come, and you have too. You know what I'm content saying right now? No, my God is good. Where he's taking me is good. 
I'm seeing the goodness of God in the, in the land of the living. In the places I haven't seen it, I know right now that goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life. They're chasing me down and they're catching me. I know that my God is good, so I can be good with mysteries I can't understand. And so with that, as we kind of land the plane this morning, I don't just want to hype you up, I want to equip you. So I want to share, if we're living in the 35 chapters of Job, very quickly, I want to share four activations, four ways we need to move and where we go, and then we're going to stand, we're going to apply it, and we're not even going to listen to what our feelings are saying. We're going to stand on the fact of who Jesus says he is. Amen? Amen. So four truths right here. The first is this. We have an accuser. He won't get the last word, so stop giving him your next word. We have an accuser. He won't get the last word, so stop giving him your next word. Here's the question I want to ask you. Who's headlining your story right now? What is it you can't shut up about? What comes out of your mouth without even thinking? Do you find yourself constantly thinking about and speaking about everything that's broken and everyone that's wrong and all that you presently lack? If so, you're giving the wrong kingdom your next word. The Bible says, tear down vain imaginations that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So this is what you need to do. There is an accuser, okay? TBI, true but irrelevant. Doesn't matter. What you need to do is move. And you need to say this, you're no longer going to star in my highlight reel. Because I'm, I've been created and known and adored and am presently held by the God who names stars and hangs galaxies. Somebody today, you need to break up with an orphan script of pessimism and scarcity where there's never enough and you're forgotten. Somebody today, listen, you need to break up with some of the conversations you're having with the enemy. You need to show up to him and be like, hey, Satan, guess what? Guess what the dollar bill and you have in common? you both single now. Mm-hmm, come on. Somebody. Somebody needs to break up with the script of pessimism. It's not your story. You're receiving a different kingdom. Somebody, that's going to be the quote you get for today. It's all right. It's all right. Second activation I want to give is this. To live in a mystery and yet demand certainty is to forfeit humility for insanity. To live in a mystery... And yet demand certainty is to forfeit humility for insanity. Insanity means you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and you keep expecting it to work out differently. Here's what I'm saying. If you're in a mystery and you're not in something that your mind can figure out, and you demand certainty, then you've stepped out of the place of humility, and it's never going to deliver what it promises. You've made one decision. Your, your, your days and your dreams won't come true, but it's not because God has failed. It's because you're refusing to become the house that he made you to be. Listen to these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And by the way, even if you refuse to be the house he made you to be, he's going to win eventually. So, like, he's given an eviction notice to the, to the enemy, so it's going to be built. Like, just stop making it so difficult. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <laughs> no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. What's he saying? He's saying this. You're in a mystery. And God right now is progressively at his own time, in his own pace, and according to his own wisdom, revealing things through the Holy Spirit. Not through logic, not through studying, not through learning, not through watching another documentary. What God is doing is rarely going to be the path you would have taken to get there. 
because he's building a house that you couldn't build. And because he loves you, he's preparing you for something that is beyond your capacity to imagine. So I want to say this in love to us in our culture. Our demand for certainty is killing us. Our demand for certainty before God with clenched fists. I'm only going to worship you when things go my way. Listen, it's putting worry where wonder should be and angst where all belongs. And if you're demanding certainty, it means that you think your human mind can, given enough time, conceive or plan or do better than your God. It also means that you're still holding the wheel, trying to coerce your circumstances into the course of your choosing. Oh, man! (laughs) What? If right now, before God, you are demanding certainty, it means that you're holding the wheel of your life. And you don't know that it's what you're doing, but you're looking for every word, every prayer, every song, every Bible verse, and you're reading it through your confirmation bias, and you're making all of it try to match the course you've already decided that you're going to go. And what's happening is you're trying like that little kid with the square peg in the round hole that's getting a hammer and just pounding it and saying, the manufacturer built the wrong thing. You're like, no, dummy, it's the wrong peg, right? (laughs) You're trying to coerce your circumstances into a course of your choosing, and even if you could get to the destination, you would find that it's completely empty. Can I say something? Here's a newsflash. Somebody say newsflash. You're not in control. Right now we're on a planet that is spinning a thousand miles an hour. We're being held in place by an invisible force called gravity. You didn't pick your birthplace, the tone of your skin, your gender, or any of the core DNA that makes you, you. No, you were knit in your mother's womb by a God who knew you before you knew you and still knows you better than the mysteries of your heart you can't yet find language for. You are not in control of anything. So what do we have to do? We've got to end our fan theories for where our life is going. You know what I'm talking about, these fan theories, right? When Star Wars or the Marvel movie comes out, the experts come and they flood YouTube with a 27-minute video dissecting every frame of a 27-second preview. And there's lots of frame, and there's lots of noise. They're like, well, there's a poster in the back that has red. And so the red means, if you listen to me for the next 10 minutes, this is what I believe is going to happen in the story. And they go down a rabbit hole to a rabbit hole to a rabbit hole, and they go, and then somebody else makes a reaction video to that reaction video. And it's so much noise, and most of it's ridiculous that by the time the movie comes out, they're all ticked off, not because how beautiful the movie was, but just because they were wrong, right? (laughs) Because their stupid theory was wrong. And I've got to tell you, somebody, you've got to stop creating fan theories for your life. You've got to stop looking at every moment. Oh, is this the time? This is the person? I met this person. I prayed, Jesus, please take care of me. And that girl looked at me. I'm going to marry her. Stop doing that. God has no problem taking you where he wants you to go if you would abide before the presence of the Lord, if you'd rest in him. We've got to trade our expectations for expectancy. And here's the difference. With expectations, we say, God, here are my dreams. This is my wish list, and I believe if I follow the rules, you'll meet my demands. Expectancy says, God, I believe that the story you're writing is exponentially better than anything I could orchestrate, and I have no clue what you're writing or where you're going, but I just want to be with you. Somebody today, you've got to say, I'm done trying to predict the script that you're writing. I need to trade control for a heart that's content to let you conduct. Somebody, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Number three, this isn't going to be any more than two hours. Just kidding. I'm about about five preacher minutes from being done. 
It went from a laugh to some pain I heard in the back, like, oh, I got a trial now. Number three, unrefined opinions. Keep our heads big and our hearts small. We've had a shift in our culture in these last years where we've empowered the 24-7 opinion. Our news has become opinion. Social media is a feed of opinion. We've raised up the Wikipedia generation that many believe they're an expert on everything because they saw a documentary or read an article. I shouldn't be that, that amused by that, but that was a little passive aggressive, I'm sorry. Proverbs 18.2 says this, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. In this shift, we've got to be the people of God who will trade the judge's, the judge's seat back for our brother's seat. We've got to trade being a critic of humanity to be a co-human with humility. Here's the truth. We don't know as much as we think we know about God, life, or them. And what we desperately need in our day is less conclusions and more compassion. What do I mean? I mean we as Christians have to stop rushing to preach what everyone else should do, and we need to rush to proximity, to join them on their road and only speak when we know that what we're hearing is the heart of the Father. The final one, and this is where I want to land the plane this morning, is this. God will be seen as good. The question is if you will choose to see today. God will be victorious in your life. The question is if you will see victory today. Like Job, one glimpse of the goodness of your God removes a lifetime of doubts and questions, and I promise you this, the day will come where you will see that God is presently in these moments working to do things that are too wonderful for words. Your path and your road isn't what you think. He isn't resisting your dreams. He's refining you to stand under them. He isn't forgetting your circumstances. He's forging your character. What you call opposition, he calls an invitation into opportunity. What you call trials, he calls training. And we've got to shift our eyes off of the roadblock and back to the refiner. You and I have to choose to see today. Would you stand with me? As you stand, I'm just going to ask this because I just want a moment that we would receive. If you just place your hand on your heart. I just want to speak the words of Jesus over you right now. With your eyes closed before the Lord, your hand on your heart, Jesus says this, do not let your heart be troubled. Listen, I don't know everything you're going through, but I know your creator. His kingdom is above all of your circumstances. And his words that he wants to ride as a wave over them all is do not let that heart that you have your hand on be troubled. Trust me. As you think about trust, I want to remind you that trust isn't, God, I trust that things are going to go and work out the way I expected. No, it's saying, God, I trust that things are going to be better than I can imagine. Trust isn't, all things are going to work out to good. It's no, God, you're going to transform all things into my ultimate good. Trust isn't, I'll understand, or I'll be understood, or I'll be liked, or I'll be chosen, or I'll be promoted, or I'll be vindicated. No, trust is, I'll be held, and I'll be his. I'll be whole, and I'll be holy. I'll be secure, and I'll be satisfied, and I'll be fully alive forever and ever and ever.
Today, somebody is the time to change the source of your hope. To get expectation off the throne. That this dream is going to go the way I want it to work. And to step into expectancy. God, I don't know what comes next. I don't have any answers. I'm swept up with the God of Job, the God of mystery. But I know this, you're good. So what trial are you in right now? Where right now, if you're being honest, if you're getting past everything and pushing through the noise, I want to validate for a minute your feelings. Because while I tell you you can't trust your feelings, your feelings are very real. You don't need to rebuke them either. Where is it right now that everything welling up within you is just breaking your heart? What dream is it that you've had for so long but can't seem for the life of you to emerge from the ground? Is there anywhere, if you're being honest, you feel forgotten by God? Could you right now with your hand on your heart, just quietly before him, tell him in a few sentences, whatever it is that's breaking your heart, God, this right now. This is the part only you can bring. Would you say, God, this right now. This is breaking my heart. God, this right now. This I don't understand. God, this right now. It's undone. I'm hurting. Now what I want you to do is imagine taking that thing in your hands. And I want you to say, but God, with this, I choose to trust that you're not resisting me. You're refining me. God, my enemy won't get the last word, so I'm done giving him my next word. God, I'm in a mystery too wonderful for me. I repent for demanding certainty. It shows that I've been trusting me more than you, and that's silly. You hang stars, and you name galaxies, and so I give you the constellations of my expectations to rehang and rename as you see fit. God, today I know that one glimpse of you is enough, and I will see you with my own eyes. I will see that you are good, so I choose to see Today, somebody say it before God, I choose to see today. God, I know you and I will be victorious together forever, so I choose victory today. Somebody tell him, I choose it. I don't hang it on my feelings. I hang it on your faithfulness. God, I throw out my old script, and I receive that you're preparing my house to be worthy. So, Father, build a way.